Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and my guest this week is radio journalist Kavita Puri, whose new book, well, it's new in paperback anyway, is Partition Voices, Untold British Stories. And Kavita's book is, it arose from a radio, a radio programme originally, didn't it? Can you tell me a bit about the background to it? Because it starts, you know, it's a piece of journalism, but it starts from something quite personal, doesn't it? It does start from something quite personal. I suppose we have to go back a couple of years. It was just before the 70th anniversary of partitions. So 2016, and in my own family, partition is a, is a story, but it's not one that I knew anything about because nobody talked about it. It was my dad, I, know, I knew the very, very bare facts which was that he grew up in Lahore and at the age of 12 he had to move to India. And every time I tried to talk to him about it, he would say, why do you want to talk about that? And he would talk about everything else. You know, he'd talk about growing up in Lahore. He'd talk about being a teenager in India. He'd talk about coming to Britain in 1959. But he would always close me down at that point that I asked him about partition. And so I wondered, oh, well, maybe that's just me. So I asked friends of mine, British South Asian friends, is this something that you experienced? And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's the same. So I thought when the anniversary was approaching, it was 70 years, it's such a long time, I thought maybe it's something more than that. And so I persuaded the commissioners at Radio 4 to do a, a series talking to British South Asians and colonial British. So seeing partition from... A British perspective rather than an Indian subcontinent perspective. But I didn't know, you know, what stories I'd get. And, and to, to cut a long story short, I did a call out and I spoke to lots of people. I never approached interviewees. And so many people came back. And what I have realised and I now realise is these stories are absolutely everywhere in Britain. And pretty much every British South Asian family has a connection, whether it's direct or indirect, to partition in some way. And how did you find the stories? So I never wanted to approach interviewees. Partly from my own experience, I realised that there was a lot of trauma. And so I, I didn't approach people directly. So I spoke to local journalists, I spoke to organisations, I did call-outs on the BBC South Asian Network and Punjabi Radio... And often what happened was it was grandchildren who would get in touch with me and say, I think that my grandparent has a story. And so then I would speak to them or one of my producers would speak to the grandparent and pre-interview them and see if they wanted to talk to us and tell us their story. And what emerged were extraordinary stories, more stories than we could actually really record and... They were epic stories, every single one. I mean, every interview you would say, oh, they're not, you know, it's not exceptional. I'm not Nehru, I'm not Jinnah, I'm not Gandhi. And then they would tell you the story that you could just think, oh, my God, you could make that one story into a movie. And in your mind, as you were kind of pulling this together and starting to give it shape, did you feel that the stories added up to a coherent picture? And did it tell you something particular that you, you felt that surprised you or that you hadn't known? I think that when you talk about partition, there is no coherent picture. And I, I think the statistics of partition are completely overwhelming. Um, it's probably, you know, worthwhile saying for your listeners that partition is, it's the largest migration in history outside war and famine. 
up to 12 million people at the point of partition and, and two or three months around it were on the move. So Hindus and Sikhs to India, Muslims to Pakistan. And around a million people of the other religion were, were killed during that time. And up to 75,000 women were raped and abducted or forced to convert to the other religion. So, you know, these are, it's very difficult to absorb this. And, and if you just take one of those stories, as I said, they are really quite extraordinary. And so, of course, what I expected were stories of violence. That is what partition is. But what I also heard were very complex stories of people of the other religion also helping people to escape, to protect them. And what I found 70 years on, because that's when I was recording people, was this attachment to the place that they had left 70 years ago and most likely had never gone back to was incredibly strong. And that feeling of very sadly, wanting to see that place before you die one last time, which is, in all honesty, is not really going to happen. Wondering what happened to that childhood friend that they never had a chance to say goodbye to because they left in a hurry. And wondering where that favourite cricket bat was and wishing, I wish I'd taken it with me. And so you, you get a story that is not what first appears because, of course, it was violent but it was also this this kind of visceral tie to the place that was left is still very very strong and those almost contradictory messages the the trauma which people and that's partly why there was silence because people hadn't recovered from it but also this profound nostalgia for the place that's left but it's not surprising because So the places that were partitioned were the province of Bengal and the province of Punjab. People had lived side by side for many generations together. And so when this line was drawn and you suddenly had to move in a great hurry, it's not surprising that people continue to have that feeling of that that place was still home because it was the language that you spoke, that you shared with the people of the other religion. It was the food, it was traditions. That had never gone away. Yeah, it's an extraordinary story. That I mean, uh, a lot of details of people taking bits of dust with them, or in one case, mm. a story of someone who's this tile from his house that becomes the kind of ultimate family heirloom. I think that it's very hard for us to understand what it's like to suddenly uproot and never to be able to go back. And I think that what has happened is... These things, uh, like that one tile or dust, or one of my interviewees went back and collected stones from his home, that's all you've got. And, And that's all you have that is proof that your family once lived there. And there is nothing else because people took virtually nothing. And so these things that look on the face of it extremely unexceptional are elevated to an ancestral home. It's hard to to understand that, but that tile that you talk about that is in Tara Parusha's family, she's third generation, everybody wants that tile because that's their link to the fact that they once lived in Pakistan. It is now actually in Delhi, in one of their kind of aunt's homes, and it's, it's kind of in the house, but it's 
It is actually sad and also quite beautiful that these completely unexceptional, insignificant items can mean so much. And sometimes there isn't a tile because that place that, that your home was is no longer exists, so you have to dig into the earth. And I speak to someone for the kind of sequel to Partition Voices that, that is in my subsequent radio programme. It's also in, in the book, who he's third generation. He took, he took pebbles and he made them into a necklace for himself and his, and his grandfather and earrings for his mum. And it's very sweet that this necklace is close to their hearts and they wear it every day. But that's it, they took nothing else. Actually, they took one photograph and a certificate of his grandfather that showed that he had matriculated from primary school, and that's it. Yeah. Now, this emphatically isn't and declaredly isn't a book about the high politics of partition, but just to sort of, you know, give it a frame, the Brits, you know, the timetable essentially was fixed by Mountbatten and was dangerously, you know, accelerated. And then the actual lines in the sand, as it were, the border lines, were drawn up by Cyril Radcliffe, you know, never having so much as visited these places, not knowing when he was cutting off the factory from the place that produced the raw materials or the, you know, religious place of worship from whatever, you know, it was absolutely just drawn through a map. One thing that is hard for for me, and I'm sure many people to understand, is why at the time of partition, when, you know, it looks like a classic British imperial cock-up was all the violence and all the rage into communal. Instead of turning around and saying, oh, the Brits have messed this up, Muslims and Hindus who had been neighbours turned on each other. Why did that happen? Where did that come from, in your view? It's very complicated. And my book is not specifically about that. But what I would say, and, and actually the violence is something that historians still argue over, But what I would say is that in the decades actually leading up to partition, there had been a movement for independence and religious identity had become really much stronger. And many argue actually it was stoked by British policies of divide and rule. And there became two competing visions of independence. On the one hand, you had the Congress party led by Jawaharlal Nehru, who wanted a secular India, wanted India united. But the Muslim League were concerned that the 100 million Muslims, a quarter of British India's population, wouldn't be protected by by the Hindus. And so they argued for safeguards. And in the years running up to independence, they even began to talk about an independent homeland. So basically, you see that independence became increasingly politicised along religious lines. And I think what happened is when the endgame of independence became inevitable, you begin to see violence, intercommunal violence. And and it's worth saying that, yes, people had lived together happily for many generations, but there had always been localised elements of intercommunal violence. But from 1946, August, starting in Calcutta, what you see is, is the end game of empire playing out. And what some historians call is kind of almost genocidal killing and targeting of the other. And it begins in Calcutta. It spreads across northern India into the Punjab by March of 1947. And so when the last viceroy arrives, Lord Louis Mountbatten, with a mandate which he's been given by Prime Minister Clement Attlee, 
to leave India and to preside over the transfer of power, Northern India is in flames. And that is the context in which negotiations take place. So you mentioned this kind of breathtaking 10 weeks to divide a nation. Well, that wasn't the case. In March 1947, Clement Attlee had said the transfer date would be June 1948. But when Mountbatten announced to to everyone in India and everyone in Britain that on the 3rd of June, that actually partition would take place not on June 1948, but on the 15th of August 1947, there was an audible gasp. Because how on earth do you divide a nation as complicated as is India? And partition wasn't inevitable, but it's what the parties in Nehru finally agreed on. And we have to understand the context for that happening. And it's as you say, by that point, you know, people in British India wanted the Brits to leave. They'd been fighting for it for many, many decades. But by that point, they were not the target. And it's very interesting. We talked about statistics. Six British people died during partition that they were not the focus of anger. It really was by that point. It was people of the other religion. But, you know, that wasn't everybody. And yes, in some cases, neighbour turned against neighbour, but that wasn't always the case. But, But this had been something that had been going on, you know, as I said, largely stoked by the British for for many, many years. Now, there were great outbreaks of violence both in the east of the country and the borderland of what was to become Bangladesh in Bengal, and also in the Punjab. But the Punjab seems to have been a much faster burn and more dramatic. Why was that? Why was it that the Punjab was where that, that very, very concentrated, quick eruption took place? You're absolutely right. A lot of the violence had already taken place beforehand in Bengal from 1946 onwards. And people had started to move there. But, but you're absolutely right. It was in Punjab that this horrific outbreak of violence happens. And you see people moving in both directions in their millions around just before August and then, and then during August and then in the months afterwards. And it's, it's hard to understand why, why it was... Punjab and not and not Bengal but it just seems to have had this effect that some people thought that they would might be able to stay and then they realized very quickly that this was not going to be the case because they would hear that mobs were coming to attack them and so would move very quickly but you also had stories once refugees came from the other side across the border they would come and bring their stories of horror and so people also then realized this is this is impossible we need to go and so it was very violent and it was very sudden and it's really worth saying that neither the the colonial British authorities nor the new governments of India or Pakistan actually thought people would move in the way that they did so nothing really was put in force for these mass movements of people. They had largely, both Jinnah and Nehru, um, spoken to people and asked people to stay where they were for, for people to respect 
these new minorities in these new countries. But it wasn't to be. And so by November, when it was clear that millions of people were moving in both directions in the Punjab, you then had the new governments of India and Pakistan intervene and actually try and help this more orderly movement of people using the military on on both sides. Now, obviously, you know, it's untold British stories. It's a it's a diasporic kind of set of memories that you're you're particularly focusing on. How different is your sense? Would this have been had you looked at the way partition is remembered within India and Pakistan? It's very interesting, Sam, because partition memories, I would say whether here or whether on the Indian subcontinent, have been shrouded in silence. But perhaps silence for different reasons, because the people who came to Britain, they were just kind of getting on with their life here. They didn't have the luxury of looking back and then their children were born here, you know, they're not taught it in schools. But on the Indian subcontinent, you know, a lot of those people were also starting their lives as well and and they looked forward and they didn't want to remember that traumatic time. And so they didn't talk about it and often their children didn't ask them about it. And there is a learning of it in schools in India, Pakistan and Bangladesh. But particularly India and Pakistan, it has tended to be a particularly one-sided view of partition. And it's, it's worth saying that all sides suffer terribly. And for Bangladesh, I suppose an after-effect of 1947 was what happened in Bangladesh, which was East Pakistan at the time of partition. It then became Bangladesh in 1971. And that war has overshadowed everything that happened in 1947. So that takes preeminence. But What has happened, I think, particularly in India-Pakistan, is that partition has been used by politicians to serve their own narrative. And so the partition generation remember a much more nuanced time. But I think what people are learning now is, is a much more black and white version of that history, which wasn't the case. And historians, or historians certainly on the Indian subcontinent, talk about the fact that history is very much partitioned now on the Indian subcontinent. Yeah. There's a sort of, to me, quite extraordinary. So I think among your interviewees, you have somebody who accepted a CBE. You've got somebody else who worked in a community charity whose patron was Louis Mountbatten. And somebody else who you quote saying, on the whole, I think partition was a good thing. What do you make of that? I mean, I'm, I'm surprised to see amid all this extraordinary trauma, people kind of making some some sort of peace or even positive attitude towards it? I suppose this is what I'm trying to say, is that there is no one view of partition. It is a very multifaceted experience. And, you know, the, the, the person who accepted the CBE, commander of the British Empire, fought in the 40s, for the British to leave. He didn't want the British Empire. So it's the greatest of ironies. And, and so it's, he wasn't the only one. There are a number of my interviewees actually, you know, gave out Quit India leaflets. Some did a bit more than that. Some actually, you know, really wanted to get rid of the, of the British and use violence in some cases and ended up here. Well, you've got some people throwing, throwing bombs. Exactly. I was wondering whether you felt a bit compromised speaking to people who, on the face of it, are, you know, former terrorists. 
Well, yes, and they weren't throwing bombs at the British, but they were throwing bombs at other people. And I, and, but I think the thing about partition is you have to speak to the perpetrators too because you have to understand what was going through, through their mind. And, and I was very curious that people who wanted the British to leave ended up in Britain, but they, they can reconcile that with themselves very, very easily. And as to the people who thought partition was a good thing, well... There must have been people who thought partition was a good thing because people supported Jinnah and people supported the Muslim League and they wanted an independent Pakistan to protect themselves. So that isn't necessarily surprising. What I thought was interesting was one man who, I think maybe 15, 16 days after partition, he was in India, he was a Sikh. A Muslim mob attacked his village. They were in India, but it was a reprisal attack. And on that day, his father died at the hands of a Muslim mob, but his sister, his sisters were saved by their Muslim neighbours. And he said to me, actually, you know, why, why did we have independence? What was the point of it? At least under the British, you know, there was order. Now, that wasn't the majority view, but, but people have very complex views of partition, of the British. And that's what I was trying to show with these testimonies is the complexity and the nuance of that, not just towards the British, but towards each other. How does it play out generationally in the diasporic community? I'm wondering how much, I mean, as you say, the memories are quite suppressed, but in terms of relationships within the South Asian community Mm. in this country as, as it goes down through the generations? Firstly, I would say, as it goes down through the generations, people don't necessarily know about partition. And funnily enough, around the 70th anniversary, that was the first time that the word partition was known by some people. And what I have discovered is a a lot of younger people in the third generation had no idea that partition was their own family story, that their family story doesn't begin in India or Pakistan, it actually begins across a border. And so there has been a learning about about that. But sometimes people want to know and they, they can't because they're that, you know, the people from that generation have died. And so people are doing DNA tests to find out where they might be from, or people are going to have to contact family members perhaps on the Indian subcontinent. And for the diasporic community, you know, you must remember our ties to this land, they are post-war, it might be one or two generations, they are fragile. And so we want to know our history before it began in Britain. And I feel that we're just at the beginning of that because we're only we're only really understanding that partition affected us. But also I think the third generation are much more interested in their heritage. But also going to your, to your point about how the communities get on, it's interesting because they don't intermingle hugely and you don't see a lot of intermarriage, for example. And whether that's partition, I have no idea. But what I would say has been carried down through the generations is a contradictory message. So trauma, even if it was never talked about, is felt and and you feel, you know, the effects of that. And that sometimes might be how people of the other community are talked about. But then there is this contradictory feeling of nostalgia and love for the place left and memories of your friends who are of the other religion. But that is also 
passed down to. And, and sometimes people of the third generation don't understand these mixed messages. And I think they're only beginning to. But it, it's kind of worth saying that part of the reason that they, they don't understand their own legacy is because not only is it not talked about in families, it's not talked about really anywhere else. It's not something they learnt in schools. You said there's not a single memorial in this country to partition. There's not a single memorial, Sam, anywhere. Nowhere, nowhere in the world. You know, it's, it's quite hard to believe. And I think a lot of that is to do with why don't we talk about that? You know, why don't we explain why I'm here today? That's because of empire. That's because it ended. That's because, you know, the British looked to their former colonies to help rebuild the, the, the country after the Second World War. We don't talk about that. And partition was the end of empire, but we don't go beyond that. And I, and I do think part of that is, you know, we don't want to talk about things that, we're not, that are not glorious. But equally in India and Pakistan and Bangladesh, there is no more memorial. And actually there is no collective memory of that trauma, which everybody suffered. Everybody suffered in their own way. And, you know, we haven't, this is what I'm saying, it's 75 years and we're not, we haven't really grappled with it here or on the Indian subcontinent yet, I think. Yeah, you say, I mean, this, this specific, you know, how, how we got here, that story, I was very fascinated by a thing you say, obviously, the, the 48, I think it's called Commonwealth Citizens Act, the, the thing that... The British Nationality Act, yeah. British Nationality Act, sorry, thank you. Which essentially said anybody who'd been, you know, lived in the former colonies was entitled to British citizenship but then you know a sort of anxiety mostly due to local politics here domestic politics started to make itself felt about immigration which we're still seeing you know versions of it are still playing out now and there's this 62 act which then restricts immigration from the former colonies and says you can't come unless you've got a work visa or you know proof of that you can get gainful employment and you say that actually that massively accelerated immigration. I mean, it had a sort of exactly the opposite effect of what it was supposed to... Hugely. I mean, that that act is kind of... It was kind of known as the ban because people, when they came, they were mostly men and actually they didn't think they would stay for a long time. They thought they'd only be here for a, a few years. But when that act came into force, and as you say, it was because of concerns about rising immigration levels, not just from the Indian subcontinent, but from kind of Caribbean as well. People decided to stay, but what they also did then was if if they were married back on the Indian subcontinent, they would bring their wives and their children over. And so people began to settle here and lay down their roots. So it it was an unintended consequence of the act. Yeah. Now, one of the kind of most shocking of all the aspects of the story or several stories that this book tells is the one of sexual violence and you know the abductions the rape the forced marriage the mutilation of women and girls and you say that's that's almost a kind of secret within a secret isn't it how how much do you feel we can ever quite get to the bottom of that i don't think we will and i think that the silence over partition that has pervaded for so many decades and still does for some people when it comes to sexual violence which was grotesque and and it was really the targeting of the the women of the other religion and it was I would say 
you know, we, we talk about sexual violence, but it was it was almost the mutilation of the body, what one historian of Ashi Batali has talked about, the kind of, as if it was like their, their bodies were like the body of the country. They, their breasts would be cut off. They would be, you know, engraved with... Pakistan's in the bad, or, or India's in the bad. On you know, on the other side, these women were were taken and then forced to convert, and their families perhaps would go over the border, and they would, and they would stay and have new families, and this was happening on both sides, and it was well known on both sides because what both governments tried to do was try to retrieve these women, and sometimes they didn't want to be retrieved because they had new families and they knew. They would not be accepted if they went back to the countries that they were being taken back to by their families. And so I think that there is so much shame attached to partition, partly because of the violence, partly because of what people saw and witnessed and were bystanders to, but also because of the sexual violence. These are women, if they are still alive in their 80s, you don't talk about such things. And I think that the silence of those women now will not be broken. And maybe we shouldn't demand it either. It's too much. You describe, actually, I mean, I think not in the context of sexual violence, but in context of, of trauma, feeling at times as if, you know, should you be asking these people to tell these stories? Yeah. You know, are you re them? I did worry about that, but I I went through a very careful process to make sure that they were comfortable. But I, my instinct as a journalist was completely suppressed because if I saw interviewees being upset, I would ask ask if they wanted to stop. I always asked them what they wanted included of their stories. They had permission to erase anything they wanted to. It's their story. It's a very personal story. And there was one particular interviewee that I was very concerned about. I could see he was visibly upset and I did check up on him, but he he wanted his story recorded and listened to and respected. And I think what we have to remember is no one asked these people, not even in their families, perhaps because they didn't know or they thought nobody wanted to tell. And for, for people to ask and for people to know that their story will be shared. And Karam, the one who I was worried about, when I told him at the end, you know, the British Library wants to archive your story, he was really moved. I think he cried because he thought, why, why me? And, and that's the thing is, I think that by telling their story, and it's worth saying, sometimes they were saying the words for the first time, probably ever, out loud. And, and it was certainly the first time that family members would hear that story. I think it was painful. I think they were remembering. I think it began other conversations after I had left. But I think also, when you tell your story, there is some form of affirmation that your story existed. And I think that they found some dignity in that. I think otherwise they wouldn't have participated. But I also think that when you come to the end of your life, and these people are, and actually Karam has sadly died since, I think you you want to tell your story. They were ready. Historians I've spoken to for the 50th and 60th anniversary said people weren't ready, certainly in Britain, but they were ready at the 70th anniversary. And I would say now on the 75th, it's almost now. Honestly, it's too late. Do you have a sense, I mean, you've said that there's no... There's no memorial, that there's no kind of formal remembrance. But 
how much of a sense do you have that the trauma of partition is kind of manifesting itself or working itself out in another way? I mean, I'm, I'm wondering, I think one of your interviewees you describe as saying, you know, feeling that the Taliban's victory in Kabul last year was, was a great triumph for, you know, Islam. And, you know, we see this extraordinary and quite scary to many of us rise in Hindu nationalism in, you know, Modi's India. I mean, do you see these as sort of epiphenomena of partition down the generations? I think that we won't know, will we? We can ascribe it to that. But I think that there is two things going on. I think you have a, certainly on the Indian subcontinent, a state narrative, and then you have the individual narrative. You have the kind of state collective memory, and then you have the individual memory. And I think that they can be two different things. So that particular conversation that you're recounting of, it was a connection between two third generations. And on the one side, he was congratulating the Taliban, but when he was called out, he said, oh no, but I don't mean you, bro. Uh, Sorry if I caused offense. And that's the thing is on, on an individual level, people don't feel like that. They have a connection, but maybe not when it comes to, you know, when you're, when you're thinking of the bigger picture. And so you just have to, you have to hold on to those individual connections and realise that the other are not that other. They are just like you. Yes, you've got an extraordinary, I mean, it's really the generational thing, extraordinary little vignette of a, I think it's a seven-year-old telling his primary school teacher, you know, you can't possibly be Punjabi. Yeah, yeah. What, what, what was the context for that? I mean... That was, I think, an interviewee who, who the daughter was telling about her mother, who was a teacher in Coventry, and she was Sikh and said, "You can't, you can't be Punjabi, you know, you're you're Sikh." And she was like, "Oh my God, I was, you know, I, I had to leave Lahore, and now I'm being told that I'm not Indian enough either." And I think she was very upset about that. And so, you know, it's, it's complicated. You know, these, these things are, are really complex. And, and that's why I think it's very dangerous to say there is one narrative of partition or one side was the victim, because that's not, that's not the case. It really isn't. Yeah. I'm, I'm intrigued by something you say as well that you think, I mean, we've, we've sort of talked around it slightly, but this idea that... The first generation doesn't want to talk about it. The second generation doesn't really want to press the subject. And it's a, it's a sort of, it takes the third generation to feel really interested in going back to this, this memory. Why is that, do you think? It's really intriguing. It is quite intriguing. And I should probably say I'm second generation. But I think... Maybe I'm, you know, an exception because people who've written to me are mostly from the third generation. I think the first generation were just trying to get on with life and they were, you know, fighting against racism, equality at work. And they were proud that this country, you know, they'd made a choice to come here. And so, you know, you you talk to them and, and they, you know, made a life here. They made a choice to stay. But their children... You know, it's, it's complicated being part of the second generation because you, you're pulled in both directions. You know, you're very British, but at home, you know, you're, you're kind of being pulled in another direction often. I think it's not surprising it's the third generation because they feel much more secure about their place in Britain. And I think that they 
are used to feeling a multiplicity of things when it comes to their identity. They are comfortable with feeling British or feeling, you know, as if they're from Yorkshire or Wolverhampton or from London. And they can say, yeah, I'm, I'm Indian, but maybe I'm also Pakistani as well. And yes, maybe I'm Scottish and I'm English. And, and, and I think that they're less hung up about it. But that is because by, you know, three generations on, they are much more comfortable in their skin here. And so I am not surprised that they want to know their history. And it's okay for them to maybe be from India and maybe also to be from Pakistan and vice versa. Or Bangladesh. Do you think for the benefit of third generation and indeed of you know, sort of aboriginally British people, this story and these stories should be a mandatory part of the curriculum? I absolutely do, because this is British history. It was the British Empire that was coming to an end. It was a British line that was drawn. And because of empire, people came to Britain to migrate. And that's why I'm here. It's why millions of us are in this country. And I find it hard to believe that that story is not, is not better known. And what I wanted to show with the story of partition is that it's all around us and it's not a story from far away. But the people who came here were born under the British Raj and they became British citizens. That is a direct connection. But I also included colonial British because I wanted to emphasise our shared history. This is not just a British South Asian story. It is a... It is a British story, and Sam, you're as much an inheritor of it as I am. And so, of course, it should be taught, not just partition, but empire too, because it's who we are. It's why we look the way we do. It's, it's you know, it's so much part of our culture. I don't find that controversial. Yeah, some people seem to. I mean, are you optimistic that this will be something that's taught, or do you think the so-called war on woke is going to make it an uphill struggle? I think that it, it is about to be in Wales. You know, I don't know exactly what they're going to teach, but it's becoming mandatory in Wales now to teach um, black Asian history. I think it's inevitable. You know, at the last census, that's 2011, there were 3 million people of South Asian heritage. There will be much more at the 2021. You know, we, we are British, and I think it is an inevitability. I don't know when it will happen, but I think... I think it will happen and I think it I think it should happen because I think we need to know we need to know who we are and we need to know who our neighbours are, but we also need to know our shared history as well. Kavita Puri, thank you very much indeed for your time. An updated version of Kavita Puri's Partition Voices comes out in paperback this month. A follow-up Radio 4 programme to celebrate the 75th anniversary of Partition comes out in August. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it. If you hated it, um, don't, don't feel you have to review it. Um, and equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk.